We are grateful uh, that you have chosen to worship with us. We pray that you feel at home, uh, part of a family, um, in the same way that you would enter one of our homes and the hospitality we hope you would receive in a home, we pray that you would receive here because this is our home in the sense practically, illustratively, uh, but we are a family and so we are grateful that you have chosen to be with us. For those who are part of the family already, good to see you. Um, grateful to continue in in this series together. John chapter 17, we're going to jump into that in a second, but I want to just kind of, for the sake of just telling you my approach to preaching and how we're going to deviate from that just a little bit this week, um, I hope and I pray that the norm, which is the norm here, that when we, uh, when I preach and we study God's Word, that we're going book by book, verse by verse, we're walking through a text together, and we're taking that text and we're asking, what, did, what is God speaking to us? What did he say? Understanding that meaning, how does that apply to our lives? And that is the normal uh, for us here at New Hope and will continue to be the normal in the future. But we have moments where we have more topical and doctrinal sermons, meaning we take an idea and see how Scripture communicates this truth throughout, and that will be kind of the makeup of the sermon tonight. So we will start in John 17 to give it this beautiful picture of the overall theme, but then we will jump around to communicate some overall truths that come out of that. We started the series last week to really answer this question. In Philippians chapter 1, 9 and 10, Paul is praying and he says, essentially summarizing, I'm summarizing, that I'm praying that your eyes may be enlightened, that you may grow in knowledge so that you can grow into maturity so that you're pure and blameless before God on the day of judgment. And there's this picture that he's talking to Christians and he's essentially communicating, yes, I'm so grateful that you walked into relationship with Christ, so grateful for the beauties that your sins are forgiven, that Christ is your Lord and Savior, but that means you have just jumped into life in Christ. This is not the end, it's the beginning of the journey. The end of the journey is where God brings all of this to completion and you're fully glorified in His, and as a new creation with no sin, no suffering, no sorrows, perfectly back into the image of God as it was intended to be. And so there's this journey of what we call theologically sanctification, the act of being set apart as sanctified and growing in this back into the image of God. But there's this picture of pure and blameless. There's this picture of maturity that we as disciples are becoming and desiring to become. And so 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 and 16 and 17, but 15, that Scripture is able to make us wise for salvation because, verse 16, all Scriptures breathe out by God, therefore is useful or profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for the training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That God's Word is used with the Spirit of God to bring about this growing in our lives to maturity, which is... For that very reason, one of the reasons we focus on preaching God's word systematically and verse by verse, where it's not the norm to do what we're going to do tonight and do it, go a little more topical. But the point is that we are growing to something. We're growing to maturity. We're growing to measure. So then it begs this question, well, what is that? And when we look at scripture and we can find a lot of examples, we see pictures of fruits of the spirit, we see all these other things. But here at New Hope, we have just simply summarize it into three, not 
exhaustive, but we believe comprehensive statements that communicate what we believe is an image of someone walking maturely with Christ. And these three statements simply are this, living surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, living surrounded by a community of faith, and living sent to the world around you. Last week, we talked about the beautiful picture of every single day, the need to live surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, that Christ is not just our Savior, our Redeemer, but He's our King, He is our Lord. And then we recognize, which we're going to see in our passage in John chapter 17, the beauty and the importance of living surrounded and the importance of community in God's redemption and for our sanctification and our holiness. So in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, if you're there with me this afternoon, would you simply just say amen? Verse 20 says this, I do not ask for these only, Paul's context, that should probably help us out here, that Jesus is praying, it's a beautiful picture of the high priestly prayer of Jesus praying, he just got done praying for his literal disciples there with him. And now he begins to pray for you and I. So when he says in verse 20, I do not pray for these only, referring to the disciples who he just got done praying for, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that you and I 2,000 years later. And what is he praying for? That they may all be one. That they may all be unified, that they all may be one. And then he gives conditions of what that looks like or degrees. And he says this, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I want you to see this. Jesus is praying not just for the disciples that are right there with him, that live life with him, but he's praying for us as disciples, his future disciples, 2,000 years later, followers of Christ. And what does he pray for us? That we would be one. To what degree would we be one? We'd be one to the same degree that Christ is unified with the Father and is unified with the Spirit. To the same degree that the three persons of the Trinity are united as one God to this inseparable unity and distinctness that in the same way that we would also be one. That we would be united, that we would be one body. For what purpose? That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. You begin to think about... He says it twice here. The purpose of the unity is because he's making this statement that when sin entered in the world in Genesis 3, according to Scripture, division took place. The worst division took place in the sense that because of sin, that we were separated, we were no longer united with God, that we were separated from him in a need of redeeming. This is the gospel message that Christ redeemed us. And so just in simple terms, there's a division there, but we also see a division between Adam and Eve. We see where they were perfectly one, no shame, that now, that because of sin, that they are divided, that they are naked and they have to cover up their shame, and then they play the blame game with one another. We see division take place. And now the vision is broken, not only between us and God, but between us and one another. And so part of Christ's redeeming work is coming and unifying us back with him and with one another. 
And naturally, because of sin, we can never display the unity that was designed for us by God. Therefore, it's only through redemption that that unity can take place. And that type of unity is one of the greatest pictures and display of God specifically sending his son Jesus to be our redeemer. He's saying proof that I really am the Messiah will be in the result that my body will be one. And when the world looks in and sees that oneness, that will be practically one of the greatest displays of the fact that I really am Lord to the world around. Depending on the generation of TV that you grew up watching, every generation, you can probably think of a few TV shows that made a lot of money and became famous because they gave a picture of a group of people being best friends. For me... That TV show literally was Friends, right? I, I tend to think that Starbucks and every other coffee shop that has existed since Friends has made their money because people are just trying to reenact Friends at Starbucks or wherever it may be. To my surprise, two years ago when I moved to New York, I found out there wasn't really a central perk. That was a very sad day. Like I, Because I grew up watching Friends... And I was like, man, this is incredible. But this is incredible for a few reasons. Because somehow in the world of friends, you never had to go to work. You just got to go to the coffee shop. Hence the millennial generation. Even when they do find a job, they still go to a coffee shop. You think I'm just making a joke. But I'm telling you, I'm trying to show you the impact of friends in this generation. It's a picture of people drinking coffee and hanging out. But here's really the point for tonight. Friends is what it is because it's a picture into a fantasy that everybody wants. It is a picture into a world where you can drink coffee all day and never have to go to work. That's part of the joke. But the reality is it is a picture into a group of friends who will drop anything to be there for one another. They're such a close group of friends, they can date and still be friends afterwards. And if you've ever tried that, that's not so easy to do. But somehow they work it out. Once again, it's a picture of no matter how they hurt one another, no matter what goes on, somehow they still find a way to be there and be friends for one another, to forgive and to care and to be and live life with one another. And they made millions giving this fantasy. And here's what I'm trying to say is it is a fantasy on a TV show. But what Christ is saying in John chapter 17 The world is longing for a picture of community that they can live life with where people can really be themselves and be vulnerable and still be loved and accepted no matter what. And Jesus is saying it's through the cross and the redemption of Jesus that you can have that with me and the church can have it with one another. And that unity will be a display of the fact that I really am the Messiah because only the grace of Jesus could produce that in a community of people. See what he's saying? That he is saying one of the biggest pictures and display of the gospel is the fact that the church really will be the fantasy of friends, in one sense, realized because people live in community with one another. That what brings them together is they are, that's another thing with friends. They have oddball characters, but they have this one thing that ultimately brings them together. And for us, what brings us together is the gospel of Jesus. And so here's what I want to do is want to try to answer the question tonight is what does the characteristics of living surrounded really look like? Last week when we talked about living surrendered, what does that look like? We talked about how living surrendered was more about being than about doing. 
Yes, the being would result in doing, but the doing of reading our Bible and coming to church and doing these things that look like we're living surrendered could be faked. But actually living surrendered means we desire Christ, delight in Christ, and depend upon Christ every moment of every day. And that would then affect our doing, but it's about being. Likewise, tonight, we're going to see practically living surrounded is a posture we take to the body of Christ. So if you have a fill in the blank, the first posture is simply being available. What does it mean to live surrounded? It means to be available. I recognize this is true for everybody in every culture, at least that I know that I've lived in. And I've lived in some, a few different cultures, but we're all busy. But New York is especially busy. Where in other places, I drove five miles to work. It took me 10, 15 minutes. Here, it's going to take me an hour and a half. I recognize that New York is different to where you don't have a lot of free time. That so much of time is demanded of you that I hear often, well, I don't have time for the body of Christ. And they don't say those exact words, but that's what they're saying. I don't have time for some of these things. And one of the first postures that we must take to live surrounded is that we must be available. Acts 2.42, right after the preaching of the gospel took place, 3,000 people came to Christ and were baptized. Here's what they did. Verse 42 of Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. The apostles' teaching are those that wrote scripture, and so now we would apply that as they devoted themselves to God's word. They devoted themselves to fellowship, koinonia. It's the same language that is used to describe Christ's relationship to the Father and the same language that is used in John 17, that they may be one. They devoted themselves to the body. They devoted themselves to the oneness of community. But devoted is what the point I want to make here from this text. What does it mean to be devoted? It means to prioritize. It means to pursue. It means to surrender and give all over to. Meaning... They prioritized, pursued, and gave over to first God's word, the body of Christ, the breaking of bread, or communion, which we're going to do tonight, and the prayers. That one of the first things and steps that believers took when they came to Christ was they prioritized and devoted and made themselves available for God's word and the people of God. So when we talk about being available, one of the first postures for us of living surrounded to the body of Christ might be to simply look at our schedule and delete some things that are of less importance. This is super practical. And me, but partly because of my organized analytical minds, that I spend either Sunday afternoon or night, a lot of times when I get home, or first thing on Monday, and I pull up my entire calendar for the week, and I schedule everything for the week. And I make sure the things that are priority get the majority of my time. I make sure that I'm available for things. Because we may not have a lot of time, but all of us have time for the things that we are devoted to. All of us have time for the things that we prioritize. And the first step to living surrounded is to make yourself available to the community of faith that you want to live surrounded by. Second, it's one thing to make yourself available. It's one thing to delete some things from the calendar. It's a whole other thing to then step in and be active within that community. It's one thing to delete some stuff off the calendar, but then you've got to intentionally fill it with something. That this idea of being active, specifically I'm going to use Hebrews chapter 10 to argue this point. Hebrews 10.24 says this, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Many times I've sat in a worship service like this and heard a pastor read that passage of Scripture and say, see, you need to be at church every single week. And I want to encourage you today, that is not what I'm going to say. And I don't believe that's what this text is saying. What I think this text is saying has more in mind of, if you were to continue reading Acts 2.42 and following, it says day by day they attended the temple together and met with one another in their homes. Being together is not two hours on Sunday. Being together is living life together day by day. It's more than showing up to church on Sunday. And shocker, I'm really honestly not concerned about your attendance. I'm not concerned about our attendance in the sense of getting our numbers. When it talks about not neglecting to meet to one another, it's recognizing that we are better together. We are needed for one another. And us coming together day by day, being in each other's lives, being active in community is essential for what? Stirring one another up to love and good works. Encouraging one another, especially since all the more the day Christ's return is drawing near. Guys, when we think about not neglecting to meet together, this is much more than two hours on Sunday. Guys, us gathering for a couple hours on Sunday is not living life together. Let me illustrate it this way. If my wife and I only saw and talked to one another two hours a week, no one in here would say we had a marriage and a family that lived together. We wouldn't say that. And I want to be respectful for some who are not in, or in a situation similar to that. I'm not, I'm not trying to highlight that as much as simply to say we wouldn't call that living together, so why would we call this living together? Now, I'm not saying this time isn't important. I'm just saying there's more to it. I'm saying that there's so much more to be active and to be a part of. And so for us, this is, yes, our worship gathering is part of it, but we think that there's more to it and that we practically play out in something we simply call community groups. We call them community groups because it's a place where you are in community with one another. It's a place where you can give your life to one another. And this brings me to truth number three. You're available, you're active, but then you're accountable to one another. See, it's one thing to be available. It's another thing to show up, but it's another thing to then give your life over to the people around you. And when I say accountable, I mean much more than just what is in the church culture of accountability partners where we talk to one another and share some sin and some of these things and try to hold each other accountable, which is good, but I mean much more than that. It means that you are entrusting yourself to someone else, that your life to some extent is accountable by that person and you're trusting it to them for a few reasons because you need them first. First Corinthians chapter 12, 14 and following. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not the eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor, uh, excuse me, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Being accountable is recognizing you need one another. 
In the passage from Hebrews chapter 10, not neglecting to meet together, the point wasn't just to be together, but it was because you are together, you're then able to stir one another up to love and good works. One of the reasons that even between the worship of song and the worship of Scripture where we study God's Word together, we have this moment of fellowship and greeting. We do that for a few reasons. One, super practical, because if you were to come into my home, I would talk to you and welcome you. So therefore, guests, when they come in, they should have an opportunity to be welcomed and talked to and us to fellowship. But it's also a very intentional moment that we hope in three to five minutes you would have a conversation with someone you know or don't know and ask and have a conversation with them and ask how their week's going. And they might go, you know what, actually I'm having a tough week. And you have an opportunity there because you're gathered and talking to encourage them, to speak life into them, to pray together for one of them. That you have these moments. And the truth is you can't encourage someone that you're not talking to. It's one thing for me, and I don't do this, but illustration it's one thing for me to get in front of a mirror and try to say encouraging words to myself and it's a whole nother thing for actually someone who's a real person to speak encouraging words into my life see i can try to give myself pep talks but when you speak into my life it changes my day my week and my life and when we're together we can encourage one another and speak to one another because we need one another we are better together and being together and unified is a picture of the gospel to the world around us but it's also what we were created for We need it. We need that communion with God and Christ, but we also need that communion with one another. Ephesians chapter 5, I want to read 15 through 21. Really, verse 21 is the point I'm getting at here, but I want us to see the full context. 15 of Ephesians 5 says this, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Clue here highlight um he's saying you need to understand what the will of the lord is he's about to tell us what the will of the lord is this is this is pretty simple verse 18 and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the spirit i need to explain this because some people just think really the will of the lord is one thing for me not to get drunk like that's the one thing he wants to communicate that i shouldn't get drunk and let me say this yes scripture teaches that drunkenness is a sin and we are not to get drunk however i want you to see The point of the text is not to get drunk, but he's using that to contrast what the point is. And the point is this. Don't get drunk with wine. What happens when you're drunk with wine? Wine and alcohol controls you. But instead of being controlled by something else in creation and a substance, instead be filled with the Spirit. See, he's contrasting the will of the Lord is not to be controlled by alcohol or anything else. That's debauchery. But instead... Be filled with the Spirit. And what does a mark or a picture of someone who is filled with the Spirit? They address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with their heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does it mean to submit to one another? It's a great question. When we immediately think of submission, we think of authority and someone under it, and that's absolutely part of it. There are moments in texts like Hebrews 13, 7 that says, obey your leaders or submit to your leaders, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account to God. There, there are clear moments, First Peter, we studied it recently, where we talk about submission, but when it says submit to one another here, um, it has those ideas, absolutely, but how do you submit to one another? Either you're submitting to me or I'm submitting to you. How does it look like to submit to one another? And, and those 
things can be processed, but I, I just want to simply say, I, I think an aspect of that is this real, realization that we need one another, and therefore we submit and are accountable to one another in ways. Recognizing that I need to submit to you, and you need to submit to me, and what does that fully look like? It's ultimately this idea because this is being filled with the Spirit. We are submitting to one another as we submit to Christ. We're accountable to one another. We need one another. It's one thing to be available. It's another thing to be active. But it's another thing to be accountable. I'm so grateful I'm for this church family. I'm so grateful for my community group. I'm grateful that I can be a part of a church family that holds me accountable. Give a testimony of this for myself and our community group as I was hanging out with some guys from our community group. We were going on a trip and we were driving and, and we were just talking. And the, and the truth is, is as we were talking, uh, no doubt I and another gentleman were slipping into gossip. We're just and we weren't paying attention. I wasn't intentional, but it was happening. Absolutely, was happening. And I'm just grateful for the third gentleman in the car, who just lovingly stopped us and rebuked us. And I had this moment where I said, "I'm so grateful that there are men in my life, men in my community, and men in this church, who can look at my blind spots. I didn't see them, and they're blind spots for a reason because they're blind to us, right?" but they're not blind to someone else. They're not blind to the people that live life with us. And I was so grateful in that moment that there was someone who could speak into my life because immediately I said, you're absolutely right. And I repent of that. Thank you. And, and when you think about moments like that, you immediately go, if you were in that situation, you might think your response might be anger or even, even if it is repentance, you might feel embarrassment. But I'll just be honest, the number one over emotion in that moment, overwhelming emotion was gratitude. I'm grateful that there was someone who was willing to speak that into my life. Because I didn't want to jump into gossip. I wasn't intentionally there, but I was there. Just because naturally we all end up in places, in blind spots that we can't see. And I'm grateful to that. I said this in the first service and they took it the wrong way. And so I want to preface this. Took it in a bad way that is only bad for me. Um, when I, you'll get what I mean when I say this. I know my wife's blind spots better than anybody. Right? I can see her blind spots. They immediately laughed when I said that because they thought I was throwing my wife on the bus and they all started looking around and she wasn't here, which only made it worse. Um, but the point is, I say that to say, why can I see my, blind, my wife's blind spots better than anybody else? Because I live with her. I'm in her life more than anybody else. And guess what? It goes in the other way. She knows my blind spots better than anybody else. And we need the people of God, we need brothers and sisters to speak the gospel into our lives as part of this sanctifying work, as part of stirring us up to love and good works, as part of sanctification. And guess what? If people aren't in your life, then who is there to call out your blind spots? And the more we live life with people, in the same way, the more I live life with my wife, the more I'm able to see in her life and speak the gospel in her life, and the more she's able to speak the gospel in my life because we live life together. And in the same way, if we are not living life together, if we are not one, if we are not united, then how are we accountable to one another? You and I are better together. So practically, I want to encourage you, as I said, that we play this out as the next step, at least from this setting to the next step, is in community groups. Places that you can, we can continue to live life with, people that is through those scenarios that it was with my community group that we did Thanksgiving together, that we're planning a Christmas party together, that we're doing all a lot of these different things. We had a, a Thanksgiving party 
and just all these things. I happen to not be there this year, but we did it last year. But the point is, you do rhythms of life together in all of these settings that we're able to speak into one another's life. How's this going? Pray for one another and really know what's going on in one another's lives. And it's in those places that the richness of community happens. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen immediately, but it happens over time. But I also want to draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 5, and this is the reason why I read all of it leading to the submitting part. It's not just being available, active, and accountable one another, but it's in the midst of all of that, God's word and his spirit is at the center. I want you to draw your attention back to the Ephesians 5, and when it says that you're to be filled with the spirit, and what happens as a result of being filled with the spirit? You address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You're giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning that whether you're singing, whether you're talking, whether you're speaking, God's word is saturating your tongue. It's saturating your singing. It's saturating your heart. All of it to bring glory to God. So when we talk about living community together, one of the things that I want us to talk about that I believe is vital to this idea of living surrounded by community of faith is for our faith to be at the center. And one of the things that's at the center of our faith is God's word. And so here's what we're going to do in 2020. In 2020, I'm going to do a year-long series that I'm simply calling the story of Scripture where we're going to walk Genesis to Revelation together. That I'm going to preach along a one-year reading plan and I'm going to choose my text based off that reading plan. Now, I want to immediately hit the pause button for some of you in this room who for a few years ago would have been me when someone said, hey, we're going to read Scripture together and I want to invite you to read a one-year Bible with me. I would have immediately heard that and gone, no, 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 no. Like, I'm barely reading the Bible once a week and you're asking me to read it every single day. Like, I, I don't know if I can do that. And not only that, I, you're asking me to read Scripture, and I'm going to get to Leviticus, and I'm going to get to Habakkuk, and I'm going to get to these places, and I'm not going to know what I'm going to reading anyway. So what's the point of spending time reading something I don't understand? But here's what I want to encourage you with. If you're here and you hear this daunting challenge to you to read the one-year Bible with me as I preach through it and us read it together, two things I want to tell you with that. First is when I first tried the one-year Bible, I tried it for two years in a row, and I literally made it to about February or March, Leviticus and Numbers. And then I was like, I can't do this no more. Like, I'm, I'm done. My New Year's resolution had wore off about Exodus. But at least Exodus had good stories. So I continued on to Leviticus. But then I'm done. Like, I, I'm just done. And it you would also often happen about that time would be spring break. And I usually went on vacation or did something. And then my habit was broken. And then I would come back. And then I would have missed like seven days in a row. And then I would come back to Leviticus, something I didn't really, really want to read to begin with because I didn't understand it. And now I got to read like eight days in one day to make up for the week I just missed. And then I had someone say to me one time, why do you feel the need to go back and read it? Well, because I'm going to read every day. He said, the point of reading the Bible in a year is not to read every single day. I hope you do. The point isn't just to do it. The point is to meet God in his word. And if you're not going to meet God in his word because you're forcing seven days of reading and you don't even know what you write anyways, you're just doing it to do it and then you're missing the point to begin with. So I give you, this is my pastor, I give you permission not to read those days. Skip them and just start with the day you are. Change my life. And I want to tell you now, I've been doing the Bible reading plan for five or six years now. I honestly can't remember. And I've never missed less than 35 days. 35 days is the best I've done. 
So even then, I'm, I'm missing about one day every six, seven, eight days, right? And so even then, I miss days. And guess what? I don't go back. I just go where God has me that day and I read it. So I encourage you, permission to skip days if you were to do this. But second, one of the things that also was vital in me creating this habit was the person, my pastor, my mentor, invited me to read it with him. We're going to read it together. We're going to discuss it. We're going to talk about it. Because it's one thing for us to read it individually, but we are better together. We can process. We can learn together. We can encourage one another. When you feel like quitting, I'll encourage you. When I feel like quitting, you'll encourage me, and we'll be able to encourage one another. So here's what I want to do. I want to show a video, and this video is... Um, two organizations, ministries, have created uh, the Read Scripture app, which is the app we're going to use for our one-year reading and that reading plan. The first organization is Crazy Love with Francis Chan, and the second is uh, the Bible Project videos. They've created an app to come together, and so I'll explain those things to you, but I wanted to show this video because Francis Chan does a better job explaining this than I will, and so let's just watch this video. 